Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. Big thanks to our sponsors, Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts, and Fuzzy Labs, um, open source MLOps extraordinaires. Today on the show, I'm delighted to be joined by Simon Stiebelainer. MLOps team lead and engineer at TMNL in the Netherlands, um, and also data lecturer, I believe. Simon, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for uh, for the invite. Happy to be here. I feel like my pronunciation of your surname before the recording was better, so I'm annoyed at myself, but <laughs> we got there. We, we always start the show with a bit of a background on each guest, uh, how they got into the world of data, and basically what you do. So I think looking back at your LinkedIn, you did a, a bachelor's in information systems in Vienna, in Austria, followed by a master's in computer science in London, right? Correct, yes. That's kind of where it started. Actually, in my in my bachelor, I did a, quite some empirical research back then, the classic methods, a lot of regressions and so on. Then I was actually working, a, did a bit of a gap, worked for Microsoft and strategy consulting, and specifically actually in Microsoft back then, we did quite some marketing automation analytics actually. And this is kind of where I was also dragged more and more into the quantitative field, which then kind of, yeah, the logical next step was then actually going for uh, the masters at UCL in London. And well, there uh, it was really highly specialized on the algorithmic side, on the really on the machine learning side, essentially. Nice. And did you work with Microsoft in Austria or had you already moved Germany. before then? You didn't, so you went to Austria, then Germany, then London? Correct. Uh, actually, it was Austria, Amsterdam, Austria, uh, Germany, Austria, London, and then again back to Austria for starting a PhD in computational advertising, which I but never completed. And then now you're back in the Netherlands, right? Yes, now I'm back in the Netherlands. You've uh, done you lots of traveling. Yeah. I like it. Why, why not though, right? And did you enjoy the, the masters in London? Was that a good part of kind of your studies? Yeah, that was amazing. Like back then, that was uh, that's now six years ago actually. So back then, right, the field around machine learning was still was still f- at least from when you look at universities and and, and education at universities outside of PhD and really the, the cutting edge, edge research, that was really still something very new. Also for companies and organizations back then, that was super, super new, actually. So it yeah. was um, an incredible experience, right? Uh, you, you have people from DeepMind teaching there. Uh, it's really an, an excellent, an excellent experience. So you said six years ago, right? So that's probably right at the start of like this data science machine learning like kind of boom if you like so i, I, I remember would say so. yeah, yeah cause i remember from a recruitment point of view it was like nobody asked for data science professionals it was all business intelligence kind of management information like that was the kind of typical data type work that we would we would pick up at my old company and then suddenly there was just this influx of like could you get us a data scientist? Mm. And then like, and then everybody else was like, yeah, we want one of them too. So yeah, six years ago is probably right about then. So that would be a really cool time to do it. And then, yeah, so you obviously had some experience at Microsoft, which is like, well, one of the top three tech companies in the world for like size, right? Um, but then you started your career kind of post-masters um, as an ML engineer. Yeah. Craftworks, is that right? Uh, actually, post-master, I, I first went for a PhD in research associate. 
at the Vienna University of Economics and Business, where I uh, was was researching topics around computational advertising, so really machine learning and specifically representation learning back then applied to classic problems you will find in online advertising. Um, user behavior modeling, click-through rate prediction, and that stuff. And then from there, actually, I was a bit too too impatient for my uh, for for a PhD, so I went uh, <laughs> I went into industry, yeah, to Craftworks. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Actually, one thing I didn't ask was, did you notice a huge difference between studying in Vienna versus London, like in terms of teaching style, content? Like, did you did you have a kind of a, a different experience in each place? Yeah, that's a very good question. I would definitely say from from a teaching style, not so much, I must say. Perhaps a bit more uh, in, in London, I did have the feeling it is more practical focused. Practical in the sense of uh, you're really working on large projects in teams. And and in addition, you have uh, quite quite big exams as well. I think in Vienna, it's, it was a bit more driven by classic exams, actually. A bit less about these hands-on projects. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that was sense. that was a big difference, and I think from a student perspective, from a community perspective, there is a bit of a different vibe, of course, when at, at UCL, uh, which is a quite, quite, quite high standard university, they they really try to push the boundaries, and they also try to push the boundaries for the students. So there, uh, you are really, really challenged. And yeah, sorry. So yeah, you ended up at Craftworks. Um, as a machine learning engineer, but I think relatively quickly ended up kind of being their head of AI, right? So what, what was that kind of first experience like in industry from an ML point of view? Yeah, um, yeah. I started at Craftworks uh, basically straight straight when I quit my PhD, and then Craftworks. Just to give a bit of context as well, it's a it's a consultancy. So Craftworks is an Austria Vienna based um, consultancy focusing on big data solutions and 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 artificial intelligence, specifically machine learning use cases, um, for large industrial companies. So when you look into the automotive sector, manufacturing sector, a lot of the big names actually you find across the Austrian and German region. Uh, are, are, are their clients. And there we started off um, when I joined, I think we were like 15 people. Nowadays, I think it's like 35 roughly. And uh, there essentially we started off building building quite some nice use cases, quite some nice projects around visual inspection, around predictive maintenance, predictive quality, all these you know classic industrial use cases. Yeah, and from there, essentially the data science part grew and grew. Then I also started taking over that uh, lead that uh, took that over that head of AI position, which then put me in a slightly different position, still being like 60% hands-on because it's still a relatively small team back then of like five people, but also a lot of other things. That's also where I started um, going to conferences a lot, uh, doing speaking stuff a lot. Yeah. Nice. So you kind of, it was a good good time to join in terms of the size and the scale and you yeah. got to have, have a big impact, I imagine. Absolutely. I think um, so. That is something I typically really recommend uh, people coming out of university try to join a bit of a smaller company because um, if you're eager and if you want to move stuff, uh, there you're typically really given the power and the responsibility from day one if you want to if you want to go for that if you really want to push things. Yeah. yeah. And there, that was absolutely that was absolutely possible. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get that. I mean, so the company where I'm working just now, we're we're, we're really small and trying to grow the engineering team. And I would love to hire some people straight from university that just want to get involved straight away, like make make some impact, suggest some changes, like tell us what to do. Like that would be yeah. that would be amazing. So yeah, totally agree. 
did you enjoy the move from like 100% purely technical to then doing that 60% hands-on, 40% kind of other stuff? Like, was that quite good for you? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, actually. Um, as I already mentioned before, for the PhD, I was too impatient. So I really like doing stuff, many stuff at once, many things at once. Yeah. And for me, that's, that's always a really nice mix, being being able to really uh, do the technically interesting things, but on the other hand, also, you know, trying to get these, trying to educate others around it, trying to push out that knowledge into the community or uh, to my students as well. Uh, that is really a super nice, nice mix I've started to enjoy back then and that I'm still trying to do nowadays, actually. Yeah, no, okay, nice. And then after Craftworks, you spent a bit of time at Ball.com as a ML engineer again. Looking at the LinkedIn stats, there was some, there's a lot of data there, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, so that- <laughs> absolutely. So um, after after Craftworks, I moved to the Netherlands um, and joined Bold.com, which is for the people who do not know what Bold.com is. Um, I always say it's the Amazon of the Netherlands. It's the largest <laughs> e-commerce retailer of the Netherlands. It was actually here a long time before uh, before Amazon as well. Uh, it is quite quite big, and well, there obviously we ha- we had a tons of data. Uh, it's super interesting company as well. Nice company culture, really engineering focused culture. Personally, I was um, I was in a team that basically took care of understanding the customer. So basically uh, focused on understanding customer interaction and and trying to structure informa- trying to structure the information we get in unstructured form in text, uh, typically. And then to to understand structure what the customer wants, what problem does the customer actually have, and based on that improve our processes throughout the company. And text can be quite difficult, right? Because you're trying to understand what people mean, and everyone writes things slightly differently, right? Absolutely, that's that's absolutely a challenge. Also, because a lot of the a lot of the data we were dealing with is also chat data. And well, as you know, when you when you chat with people uh, via WhatsApp or w- whatever it is, right? You typically your the language you use is quite heterogeneous, so you yeah. do not always pay a lot of attention to your spelling and so on. So you, uh, it's always difficult. You have a lot of varying lengths as well in messages. Some people like to hit the enter button like after every after every three words, and then there are other people who really you know write 500 words and then hit enter. So you have really a massive spectrum of things you actually find there my least favorite kind of person on whatsapp is someone that sends like hits the enter button like 15 messages when it could just be one it's my least yeah. favorite thing yeah. uh, so i imagine it's very annoying if you're doing like a chat function trying to analyze the data but no that's that's quite funny and you mentioned they had a strong engineering culture in the role that you did or that you do that must be pretty important right to join companies where engineering is either engineering and data are either at the heart of it or they they really get it yeah so i think it depends a bit on 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 what you like to do if you like if you're a person who for whom it's absolutely fine or perhaps you even enjoy uh, pushing through a lot of barriers right a lot of a lot of a lot of barriers specifically on the business side educating people around why certain things is important right it started like years ago with why do we actually need data science and some companies are still asking this question if you if you don't mind pu- run, pushing through these barriers perhaps it's not a strong engineering culture or a strong awareness around around novelty in engineering perhaps it's not that important for you but um, if you really want to 
Want to have things more fast-tracked and more fast-moving on the tech side, and definitely, uh, I think, looking out for, for a strong engineering culture and for strong awareness around what value engineering can add, specifically when engineers and teams have freedom to act, that is super important. Yeah, I think it's also important if you're looking for a role in kind of ML engineering or data science, like if you're not the senior person, you want to look up and see who your senior person is and like how do they manage the business because so many times on this podcast when we've interviewed kind of senior people they've said that their most important skill and challenge is like talking to the business like you just said like why do we need data science like what are we actually doing so if you can shield the data scientists from that in some respects and focus on the culture of engineering and, and getting interesting solutions out that's a really important step, right? You don't want to be, you don't want to be that data scientist that joins a company that never gets anything into production because it just gets stuck somewhere in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. Which, that's which I'm sure you've seen before as well. Absolutely, uh, that's it's an incredibly frustrating experience. That was also something uh, that was also one of the reasons why actually um, I, I moved from consulting to a product focused company. Uh, my experience was in consulting. Back then, I mean, that's, that's also a couple of years ago, I hope, uh, I, I hope and I think things have changed. But back then, that was a challenge you often faced as, as, a, as an external consultant. You were building solutions for a company and then they slowly, after a handover, they slowly died again because actually there was not that awareness yet. There weren't the skills even to take it over properly yet. Uh, so often yeah. it died at a very, the project died at a premature stage. And that's frustrating if you've... Especially if you really love what you do, it's frustrating if you build something that you really believe in and then, yeah, at the handover stage or the kind of support stage, it just disappears. Like that, yeah, that must be frustrating. And after Ball.com, I think I'm right in saying that you started out your kind of freelance machine learning career. What kind of pushed you down that route? That's pretty interesting. Uh, well, the, the freelance part, I've always been doing on the side. I mentioned it before, I'm a, a person who likes to do many things at once. Uh, like, I like to have side gigs. Um, so the freelance aspect is something I have actually been doing since I, since my PhD back then, essentially. It never, it's, it's usually an on and off thing for, for, various, for various organizations. Also, it, uh, it differs quite some when it comes to what I actually do for these, uh, for these uh, organizations. Usually, it's, it's more high-level consulting not much hands-on but more coaching teams or helping them uh, solve complex problems in the space but not so much hands-on um, this is one aspect another aspect is also um, education um, working for universities with universities creating educational material courses for master students and also teaching them actually which is then not on the freelance and actually the teaching, but that is then a, a kind of a permanent sidekick. Yes, I was going to say, because you're really involved kind of lecturing and um, like you said, designing the course and stuff as well. Is that just like, is that element of teaching and giving back just something you love doing? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that's something. Right when I when I was doing my PhD, and when you when you're doing your PhD in Austria, very often you're employed as a research associate as well, and part of that involves actually it's mandatory teaching as well. And this was actually also where, well, at first you think, oh, I have, I have less time to focus on my research. That's bad. But uh, then you actually, um, at least some people really start liking that. Uh, really start liking passing on that knowledge, bringing making something complex, a 
appear simple and start and then start to build that knowledge with the students. I think that, at least for me, is something incredibly rewarding as well. And it challenges you as a subject matter expert to really think differently about, about, about the things you're working on a day-to-day -day basis. And the students also, they do test you whether you know your stuff inside out or not. <laughs> of yeah. course they do. Yeah, I remember at uni that you could always tell when the, the postdoc researcher enjoyed the teaching part or felt like it was just taking them away from what they wanted mm -hmm. to do there was always like it was one or two right one yeah. wanted to be there and love teaching and one just couldn't wait to leave from a lecturing and, and content or creating courses is that difficult because technology moves so fast right so like when you're writing these courses what you wrote last year might not even be relevant like today or is that part of the challenge like do you have to keep ahead of the game all the time Yeah, I think to, to some extent, absolutely. So typically um, in the, the courses I'm teaching, I usually try to structure things to have a, a good portion of theory elements, which often do not change that fast. What changes a lot faster is then more the, the practical things. So how do you now implement stuff? What also moving from theory more to practice and what packages, what tools um, are there these days? What what are recommendable for which for, for which use case? I think on that end, it's actually quite challenging because that does move a lot from, from year to year in the ML space, in the ML ops space as well. There is an incredible, still incredible developments. So that definitely is something that where you need to be, where you need to stay up to date and also invest that time to bring it into the course materials. Yeah, because you're right. The theory behind data science, software engineering, like all those things, that not changed hugely. It is just, yeah, the, the tooling and the application of that tooling as well. And But yeah, you mentioned MLOps, which is a good time to get onto actually, but I mean, MLOps as an example of keeping up to date, it wasn't really a term a, a couple of years ago at best. People have tried different ways of explaining it, but now it feels like it's, it's relatively accepted as MLOps. And we actually had a... Ed Shee from Selden on the show last week. Um, it's not out yet, but it will be out shortly. And he said that um, he quite likes the fact that MLOps has turned into a bit of a buzzword because it means people are going to understand what we're all talking about now. Instead of trying to explain it with no context, um, you can just use that phrase and then explain it after that. But yeah, you're working in this MLOps world. You're pretty, pretty prominent on LinkedIn with posts around tooling and ways of doing things and also you're working at um, TMNL um, as an MLOps team lead. How did you get into that kind of niche of machine learning? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, that, that, that my MLOps story started already back then at Craftworks. That actually started like five years ago now, approximately. I mentioned before that when I was working in consulting, we often saw actually projects dying at the quite premature state. And one of the main reasons we saw back then was that the organization struggled a lot with, okay, so we know that this problem is not solvable. We, we have a model, we have a containerized solution. We have basically the, the basic tools so we can take this over and create business value with it. But what they really struggled with very often was then, okay, how do we now implement this in our, lens, in our, in our tech landscape? How, what do we actually do with it? How do, we, how do we retrain it? All these questions. And when we saw that, we actually thought about it. How can we, how can we help organizations solve that problem better? And back then, yeah, MLOps was not a thing. The, the term didn't really exist yet. 
So we did uh, we did look around um, into the into the tooling stack back then. Some tools that are that are that are still around are of course do still exist these days. Have become quite big, and we ended up actually building our own deployment serving and monitoring platform back then, which is actually uh, it. It exists. It's actually purchasable as a product. It's called Navio.ai. It's released. And so back then what we did is we said, okay, we really want to take away the pain of deployment, serving and monitoring from the data scientist. The only thing that the data scientist needs to do is create a model and package it up in an ML, MLflow packaging format. And then actually via drag and drop, move it into the, into the web interface. It's being deployed. It's being served via an endpoint and it's being monitored. And you have your dashboards that show you your your feature distributions, your output distributions, and that stuff. And that was actually how I got into the MLOps space without even knowing the term MLOps. Yeah, that's what I was going to say because um, <laughs> it looks like from your roles as well doing your masters in computer science with a focus on AI, and then being an ML engineer and some of the work you mentioned at Craftworks and Ball.com, it looks like a nice mix of software engineering principles in the machine learning world. So yeah, MLOps without knowing it. <laughs> it, it. It makes a lot of sense. And then now at TMNL, what what is the challenges there from an MLOps point of view? And also, what do what does that company do to, to kind of give the audience an, an idea? Yeah, yeah TMNL... Uh... Probably, probably it's, it's not a company that's yet not not well known. TMNL stands for Transaction Monitoring Netherlands. Um, it's essentially a, a fintech startup scale-up with the mission to collectively uh, defeat financial crimes such as money laundering and the financing of terrorism. What does it actually mean in practice? Uh, we are owned by the five large Dutch banks. Uh, we are a joint venture of these banks. They are our they are our shareholders. Our purpose is as TMNL to build a top-notch transaction monitoring platform that really focuses on detecting unusual patterns in payment transactions. So basically, uh, we have transactions of businesses in the Netherlands from these five shareholding banks and we are uh, developing anti-money laundering algorithms that run on these transactions and well uh, try to detect these unusual patterns that must be mega interesting from a data point of view right because like there'll be so many transactions there'll be all the historic data there will be anomalies which turn out to be fine and then there'll obviously be things that you want to investigate further so like from a, a kind of data and tooling point of view, it must be quite a big challenge. It is. So um, as, as you mentioned, right, it, it is massive data sets, of course. There are a lot of bank transactions going on. That is challenging. Um, data is always challenging. Uh, of course, there are, there are some, some um, great tools, um, how, the way how we build our data pipelines, also the way how we are building data quality checks, how we do data testing and all these things. Right? These, is th these are things that, uh, where you can't make any compromises. That's where you've uh, got to invest a lot of time and thought. In, um, otherwise, it's gonna burn, that's going to burn you further down the road when you actually move over to the modeling side. So yeah, yeah that, is, uh, that is definitely challenging. When it comes to detecting these unusual patterns, we do collaborate with the banks um, very, very tightly to also, of course, uh, validate what we are doing and validate all these things that we are producing. Yeah, no, that, that I mean, it's, it sounds like a really cool challenge. And then from an MLOps infrastructure point of view, have you managed to 
set up that kind of best practice from the beginning of this venture uh, rather than a lot of companies now. And it's actually funny, you said at Craftworks that most of the companies you speak to have this model. They have proved they can do it, but there's no business value because they can't get it into production. That's the same challenge now that we're facing with most of our customers. So although it was five years ago for you, mm-hmm. it's not it's not changed that much. Um, but yeah, so and what, when I've been speaking to some data science startups, we've been suggesting that they get ahead of the game and uh, and get the MLOps infrastructure in place like straight away. Like don't wait for it to become an issue. So have you managed to do that where you are, or was there a little bit of kind of technical debt as well? Mm. Uh, good question. Um, so. The, the thing is, since at, uh, Transaction Monitoring Netherlands really creating these models, detecting these patterns is really at the very heart of the company. It is the core. And that really means also MLOps is very much at the core, right? Because if you, if you want to develop models at the scale, if you want to scale that out um, effectively, then you need machine learning operations. This is where you really, really need it. And so in, in our case, MLOps has, has been a team it has been a thing essentially since the beginning yeah so of course they're always challenging uh, there it's always uh, it's always uh, on the one hand teams data science teams need to be able to work need to be able to push out the products but on the other hand you need to draw up uh, the entire ml ops platform in parallel so there are always challenges right um, the tech is moving your platform is moving data science team needs to need to migrate need to move together with you and so you need to find a balance and also a, a teaming setup that really facilitates uh, that on the one hand gives data science teams model development teams the, the the power and the skills to be able to move together with the platform but on the other hand you also um, need to make sure to be able to move at the at the fast pace when you develop that platform yeah yeah and yeah it must be quite tricky actually to kind of move those things in tandem almost mm-hmm. um and so do you have like you and the mlops team and they work closely with the data scientists but it is like a separate team where people purely focus on mlops yeah um so the the, the teaming setup that that um, i find is that i find highly effective is usually a yeah, well you can think about it a bit as a, as, a, as a matrix thing so what what i think is highly effective when it comes to machine learning operations is to have a centralized part so a centralized ml ops team that builds the core platform the thing that should really be centralized but then uh, at least i believe even if you build an ml ops platform a mature ml ops platform you cannot take away some you cannot take away engineering best practices and you cannot take away some of the infrastructure from the actual teams that develop models so what i find is highly effective is you still need a machine learning engineer somebody who knows how the infrastructure works below it you still need that person in the actual team that develops the models Um, and then at least then the i think the, the the gold standard is then really creating a a channel between the centralized team, the machine learning engineers working in the field and ensuring continuous knowledge exchange between the field, the centralized team. So you can actually, so you know what's happening in the field. What do you want to centralize? What should stay in the field? Yeah. And ideally like this, this is an approach how scaling up that platform together with the model development teams in tandem can, can work. Yeah. No, I like that. And the collaboration part is key, right? Like you can't have this centralized MLOps team 
never talking to anyone that's building models because they're just not going to get the pain point. They're not going to, they might focus on the wrong thing and build something really cool that isn't going to help anybody. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that part's really, really important. And then when you are hiring into MLOps teams or if you were to, to grow that team, how do you, what would you look for in a good MLOps engineer? And I ask partly out of curiosity, but partly because we've had this discussion internally as well, where we probably lean closer to software engineers with an interest or understanding of data as opposed to a data scientist who maybe understands a bit of engineering. I uh, fully agree with you there. Um, that's also, and by the way, we are hiring. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I fully agree with you there. What what we've also we've also seen, and what what also just that the job requires is that you have solid uh, infrastructure knowledge, at least on our end, right? Uh, um, AWS, knowing in the AWS inside out, knowing infrastructure, infrastructure as code. These are really things that are, that are super important uh, for ML ops, of course. So as you said, coming more from the software engineering end, typically you know a lot more about these topics. And I also agree with what you said, knowing how mod, what model development looks like. And also so the person can understand a bit the pain points and also relate to what, what does that model development journey look like and what tools should we be building and how should we be building these tools to actually facilitate that journey. Uh, th this is the profile we are typically looking for. Yeah, and I think it's important because... Some of the challenges around getting models into production can be as simple as like data versioning or experiment tracking. But if you're a software engineer that's never looked at any of these areas, you might not understand that data science teams don't typically use source control or yeah. they don't have, when they're experiment tracking, they don't know, that, yeah, they don't have a tool for experiment tracking. Whereas in software engineering, these tools are almost standard now. So yeah, having the knowledge that there is gaps in the tooling is part of your job. Um, so yeah, I think having the knowledge is really important. But yeah, they're typically more software engineers is how we see it too. Um, you mentioned your hiring. Um, is, it, is your team fully in the Netherlands? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, spread out across the Netherlands. Um, but in general, full in Netherlands, uh, now, actually now it's not quite true anymore. One person is actually now sitting in Lithuania. Nice. But in general, yes, uh, in the Netherlands. And then I suppose kind of lastly, or two things. So from a, a kind of MLOps tooling point of view, do you tend to lean on certain tools or do you have an opinion on kind of like open source versus proprietary? Um, how, how does that work in the companies that you've worked in general? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so right, the MLOps tooling landscape, it's a... It's a jungle, I always tend to say, and <laughs> it's not not uh, not necessarily the, ni the nice way, the nice kind of jungle. It's difficult to manu to maneuver, also because there is there's so many tools popping up, so much funding is flowing into that market. It's it's amazing. It's great to see, really great to see. But for for a user, that makes it challenging because it's uh, the tools are developing at a rapid pace, new tools po tools popping up, and then the interoperability between tools is also. It can be quite a challenge, so you're gonna you might end up writing tons of glue code, which eventually makes you question. I just should have built this by myself, probably. <laughs> so this is it's difficult. So typically, what um, usually I've always been working on the big cloud platforms, right? Azure, GCP, and AWS. 
Yeah. And all of these cloud platforms come with uh, have their own machine learning ML ops centric products. They have uh, invested quite some in that in the last year. Vertex AI was released, I think, pretty much a year ago now. Uh, SageMaker is being pushed quite a lot by AWS. So typically what what I first look at is what are the tools that we currently have to solve things. Uh, and that can be your, in, in a larger company, you will have established tooling for building your CI/CD pipelines. You, you have established artifact stores, um, all these things. So I always recommend look at the tools that you already have first. And how can they be leveraged to build out your MLOps processes? MLOps is a, is a name for a field now, but it doesn't mean that it's completely different to, to classic DevOps, right? You can use many of these tools to, to solve your problems. Uh, this is one thing. So this is what I typically try to recommend. And then look into the tools that you already have available just by the fact that you're probably using some major cloud vendor. And then start building your first POCs with, again, what you have easily accessible there. Of course, there are tons of there is tons of open source tooling out there as well, which which is great, and some of them are really really uh, have become the de facto standard in some things. Just thinking about MLflow in in many aspects, for example. But there is always a challenge, and building these things, stitching these things up, um, and expect also to invest quite some time in not only building but also maintaining these things. So this is something that you should ask yourself: Do I really want to build? A platform largely operating on open source tooling. Do I have the manpower behind it? Do I want to invest uh, the resources in that? Or do I want to go with as many managed services as I can and only where really that doesn't float my boat? And there I move over to, to open source tooling and stitch things up. Yeah, no, that's a nice way to look at it. And I think it's really good advice, kind of remember the basics at the start. Like, what do you already have access to? What can you make do to get the kind of the most kind of basic solution together to test things out first um and yeah it's a good point there's just so, there's so many tools um and i think that's actually one of the reasons that the team here at fuzzy labs have done quite well is because we've done lots of research into these tools so companies can then trust us to choose the right one because like you said it's a jungle like if you joined a company as head of data and they said, okay, we want to build an MLOps platform, go find us all the right tools. It would take you like six months, a year, just to like get through all the demos, the pitches and like all these different things. And then a lot of people we spoke to, the, the problem with managed services or proprietary is getting locked into things as well. Um, especially smaller companies, they want that kind of lightweight flexibility. Um, and also in time, if they want to grow their own team, they want to be able to keep what they've already built. And sometimes if you get a platform, that's not possible, right? So there's just so many things to consider. So yeah, I like the way that you explained that there. And yeah, typically if you're using a huge cloud vendor, there are things you can make use of pretty quickly. And yeah, there's a lot of people that say that DevOps and MLOps aren't the same, which is obviously true, but the approach is similar. The the reason for doing it is similar. So yeah, there's no harm in looking at some of those things that are already in place, right? Absolutely. Um, I think that that should be a starting point, right? Having in mind, where do I want to go? What is my what is my more strategic plan? What, what do I want to build in the next two, three years? What's my target architecture, actually? What do I currently have? Where am I? Uh, what are the tools I currently have already? And then what do I need to build out my target architecture over the next years? And what 
how should I do that piece by piece with every step with what should I actually start with what can I also take away the the bigger pain points of my of my data science teams uh, relatively fast it's something I always recommend right don't don't think about ML ops as just a, a bag of tools you're going to use yeah. but think about it as um the, the the overall goal should be making model development teams more effective allowing them to operate faster and with higher quality uh, so it's all about analyzing the processes how are people currently developing models what are their pain points where are things starting to break these are the things uh, that are super important for actually getting ml ops right it's not about using the, the most fancy tools at all yeah no we had a really interesting conversation with a fairly well-known kind of retailer where they said to us like we don't need a box of tools like we've got loads of tools like we actually want someone to tell us where to use each tool almost like we've got access to all these things like microsoft have given us access like we've already bought this platform blah blah whatever they were just like asking us from an mlops point of view where do we start um, so yeah, you're right. It isn't just a bag of tools, and suddenly you will have this amazing infrastructure. Um, it's not gonna. It's never gonna work like that, right? And then I suppose just to finish off, then the last part that I think probably the reason you're actually on the show is I came across some of your content on LinkedIn, and kind of I know that you speak at a lot of events. Um, you mentioned that already earlier in the show. You put up, you put up videos like explaining certain tools and ways of doing things um is that again just that part of your brain that likes being busy like is is that where that came from uh yeah actually the the speaking part came back then just because at craftworks we were doing some some quite nice stuff back then and we were like of course as a consultancy it also makes sense to go on stage uh it's also yeah. a form of, of developing business so that that went hand in hand quite well and i did keep that then even after consulting for the main reason that i really enjoy the interaction with the community and i and i enjoy um, giving a good talk and and seeing people you know thinking i really learned something now uh, that's what I, that's what I enjoy on the on the on the talk side around the, the LinkedIn content and the other content I'm producing also the blog posts I'm writing. I think the the blog the blog posts for me are really about structuring thoughts that I have. So I really like to structure my thoughts by writing things down and putting things into a story. That really forces me to order things in my head, and it happens that that also a nice blog post comes out. It's not something I, I, I necessarily every piece that I write down actually becomes a blog post, but uh, when I'm happy with something, I do I do publish it. The, the LinkedIn, me being active on LinkedIn is really more a thing that I come across a lot of different, especially tools and concepts online and also blogs and papers because I'm just reading a lot of these things. And what I actually do is I bookmark some of them. I take screenshots when I'm on my mobile phone. So I actually have a list of things usually that I, I found quite useful. And then I try to just spread that on LinkedIn because I know the MLOps field is, is relatively new. A lot of people are interested, but they don't quite know, you know, how does it work? How can I break into it? What tools are there actually? As, and I've noticed that you know, just by sharing some of these tools and sharing minimum examples of how you can use these things and what they're actually good for and maybe what not. Uh, again, it, it helps It helps people understanding a bit more about the field. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm doing it in a nutshell. And also it brings me then again together with nice people, such as you, for example, right? 
Mm, thank you. Uh, no, you need. We need to try and get. Uh, if you're ever in the UK, get you along to some of our in-person meetups because um, we run one in Manchester. We're actually obviously running the virtual one that I'm already talking to you about. And then I keep asking my boss if we can go to some of the MLOps things that are further afield. I noticed there was a, there's one in Valencia and one in Canada. They both look quite nice for a for a trip. Purely just. I mean, obviously, just for the MLOps, it has nothing to do with the sunshine or anything like that. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it's really cool to see. And, and I mean, I've sent your videos around to some of the team as well, because I, I like the fact that I think quite a lot of the time content on LinkedIn and even blog posts either can be, it can be quite dry if it's just words, or sometimes it can almost be too technical, whereas a relatively quick video snapshot of showing this is how you do it from a fairly basic level. This is what it's supposed to do, and this is why I like it. And then it's all recorded. People can kind of visualize it a little bit better, I think. Um, and then if you've got a longer blog post or a longer article that you found, you can link them together, right? It, it kind of works hand in hand. So it's, it's a really nice way of doing it. So it's, it's really clever. But no, thank you so much for the time. Um, have you got anything coming up that's worth promoting in the way of events or speaking or stuff that you guys are doing in the team? Anything you want to you want to shout about? Uh, good question. So, so first of all, again, we are hiring. So if you're interested in MLOps and you like to work on AWS, uh, shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Um, that, that is one thing. Uh, in, with regards to events, uh, there might be some, some conferences coming up then, some conference talks, but more towards the autumn. No, nothing fixed yet, but I will definitely, again, promote that on LinkedIn once stuff is fixed. And nice. then I'd be very happy if people just reach out as well or well, we're going to meet at the conference and is the easiest way to follow all of your content like your blog and everything probably just by connecting on linkedin and then keeping keeping tabs on that yeah absolutely nice all right well thank you so much for the time simon really appreciate it um i thought it was really cool to talk I, i'm looking forward to seeing uh what you and the guys at tmnl kind of come up with from an mls point of view yeah thanks a lot it was a pleasure